0: I'm Julian Brandt and you're listening to Scouted Chance. Hey everyone, welcome back to Scouted Says. It's been a little while since you've heard from us, but we've been on Twitter covering the U17 World Cup. I'm alongside Jake Enwistle and Steven Ganevis. Of course, they've been doing most of the coverage for Scouted Football. How's it going, guys? Really good. Thanks, Jack. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Jake, how are you doing? Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm here. I'm here. There was that awkward moment where you didn't know who was going to reply first, so I just held out and waited for Steve to go forward.
0: But yeah, I'm good. Yeah, we were able to coordinate uh, three very different time zones. Uh, I think <laughs> uh, the U17 World Cup in India was probably a good time zone for you, Stephen, for once.
2: Oh, uh, the second game still finished at three thirty in the morning, but I've survived. I'm still here.
0: <laughs> yeah, perfect. Uh, not too bad then, I guess. We'll get right into everything, but first. A word from our sponsor. The proof is in the pudding, and the pudding in this case... Is it...
2: FootballShirtMemory.co.uk offer a wide range of rare football shirts sourced from all over the globe. Either find something on their website or ask them to find it for you. Once you've found the shirt you're looking for, use the code SCOUT at the checkout for 5% off your order.
0: The goalie has got football pie all over his shirt. Yeah, so I, I wanted to quickly talk a little bit about Uh, Twitter. I know we we were really active, the account there. So I was kind of wondering how you guys went about really covering it. And I mean, obviously, we had live coverage of the games. But what did what were you kind of looking for?
1: So when we sort of um, started setting up like the the proper in game coverage, that's something that has really developed this summer on the account. And uh, we just want to give as much info as possible to people that Obviously, those games weren't on telly until until the end. That You could find some on in England. For me, they were, they were on Eurosport, but they were at, at lunchtime. So unless you were off in the day or working a different schedule, you couldn't really watch it yourself. So what we wanted to do with the match coverage is just highlight everything that was going on for, so you could watch it sort of surrogately. You weren't needing to watch the game, but we were providing so much insight that you knew how each team was playing and you knew which players were, were standing out. And I think we achieved that. You're never going to get much engagement and stuff off of a a pure match coverage, but there was so much information going out on our account about every player in that tournament that I think if you followed scoured football during the Under-17 World Cup, uh, the knowledge you got from it was, uh, was pretty good in my opinion.
2: And I think it was good how we kind of anchored the coverage. We talked a little bit about individual teams and how they played, but at the end of the day those teams as soon as that tournament finish are pretty much disbanded and will never play again so i think it was quite good that we anchored the coverage mostly around um individual players and how they play just so that that insight kind of has an ongoing meaning because these players aren't going to disappear anytime soon their teams will but but they're still go- still going to be around
0: yeah i think that's important because like you said they're not going to disappear but the coverage of them is going to dry up and like what you were saying jake uh sometimes the streams if you were able to find them of course because they weren't on tv maybe it'd be in another language i know so it was pretty helpful for me at least to to kind of follow along with the twitter as well
1: yeah exactly and and just obviously no matter how much of an expert you proclaim to be you're not going to recognize every single 17 year old that's playing in this tournament so even for us it was about learning about new players um identifying them by their number then their name and then learning more about them and watching how they play and then that's what we tried to communicate to everyone else is these are the players you need to watch because as as steve just said once they go into their club setup or or go up a level in the senior national team the style of play changes the the philosophy changes of each team but their gut instinct and and how they will want to approach the the game won't and that's what we try to sort of pick out in each player that we were looking at
0: yeah and maybe some guys that have a bigger role for their their teams here than they have with their club so it's it's kind of important to see that and like you're saying describe their style of play because there's not a, really a whole lot of information about these guys and sorry to say they're not really at the level of uh, handbook profile material yet you know not that caliber
1: exactly it's almost it's almost too early for them as well they they can look good at 17 but they're playing with 17 year olds when you see them in a different environment that's when we start that's when they start really shining and that's when we'll 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 put them under the
0: microscope yeah we were kind of talking about that right before the show not to get too off topic but with goalkeepers you know sometimes goalkeepers if they're really good enough they're going to get poached and move to a higher level within their club so uh yeah i guess that's that's kind of just a footnote on that but you don't you don't really see a lot of guys and steve what you were saying if sometimes if you're not really focusing on the goalkeeper you're not really going to be evaluating them so maybe this tournament wasn't the best for that but we've got a A lot of good analysis from the tournament that we can provide. All right, so let's take it from the top then, I guess, and start with the final, go from back to front. You guys, that was one of the craziest matches I've ever seen at any level of football.
2: Yeah, England were pretty slack early. They gave away two pretty cheap goals, um, especially the first one. But just before the break, they, they got one back through Brewster, a lovely finish and a lovely cross. Um, and from then on, in the second second half, Spain just couldn't keep up with, with the with the heat. I don't know if it was yeah something something just changed for them. They couldn't match England's tempo in that second half. Um, and then yeah, Foden just took over the game. His uh, interlap with uh, Steven Cessignon on the right was absolutely crucial, and Cessignon provided a couple of really nice assists in that game. Um but yeah, it was all about Foden really. He he was the one that turned the game. Um every time he went forward on that right hand right hand channel, just looked like something would happen for England. Um and yeah, Spain, their, their left centre back Willemon was probably one of their weaker links as well. Um and he kept get drawn kept getting drawn out of position and uh, eventually yeah, Spain just folded and, and England were deserved winners.
1: It was the it was the highest scoring final in, in under seventeen world cup history so it wasn't you don't really see those five two games happened every every year but it was just a testament to i think england's style of play throughout the the tournament they were they the wingers the left and right winger obviously Jaden sancho in the group stages then hudson adoy mover left they also they almost became the most important players which is which is strange um because they tucked inside and as steve said they relied a lot on their fullbacks for that final bit of width but yeah, Phil Foden on the right-hand side, every time he picked that up, he drove inside. And, and you don't know, if you try and tackle him, that's when he offloads it to Cessignon. If you let him run with the ball, then he'll keep dribbling and he'll, and he'll weave his way right into the penalty box. And, and that's when he causes you the most danger. So Spain, yeah, just got overran by England's fairly simple, but extremely effective and, and, and well-thought-out game plan. Uh, the pace that they've got in their side is always going to cause troubles. And... They, England would deserve winners and and they, they it was revenge for them because obviously in May uh, Spain won and with a late equaliser and then then won on the penalty shootout in the European Championships and England were definitely the better side in that as well it sounds biased coming from me I know but uh, just watching that game back England dominated the whole game but only scored one goal uh, withdrew all their good players in the final 10 minutes to try and hold on and, and eventually it cost them so it was brilliant to see the England players not give up after that 2-0, going down 2-0 early. Uh, and that second half blitz was one of the best 45 minutes of the of the tournament, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, the, that mentality is great. If they score two, we can score three. I mean, they, they even end up scoring five, of course. But England being one of the highest scoring teams of the tournament, 23 goals in those seven games. And only Japan held them scoreless. But yeah, Spain could not contain them. <laughs>
1: yeah the uh the Japan game was like one of the fiercely contested encounters that England had and they seemed to sweep through everyone else um and as well a lot of their goals were from, they were the most from open play as well I know that sort of gets um distorted by the fact they scored the most anyway but um yeah there was only i think oh well, they scored two penalties um one was obviously brewster one was sancho in the uh in the group stages and sancho in fact missed one but yeah, in terms of open play goals as well, they were three ahead of Marley, who were in second. So they were carving teams open uh, with set pieces and, and, and as I mentioned, just through the overloads out wide and using really tricky technical wingers and then using the raw speed and uh, and width of, of the fullbacks to sort of punish people and isolate people in 2v1 situations. A lot of the goals England scored were the low crosses and it was Brewster's Bruce's excellent movement in the penalty box that found them. So,
0: yeah. So England definitely demonstrated that they were one of the most prolific teams in the tournament. Twenty-three goals in seven games, five in the final. And Jake, you were talking about how good they were from open play.
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned, they they were they were top for open play goals um, as well. They only scored two penalties. So although they were the most goals scored in total, it was it's good to see that a high percentage of that is from then just creating the chances. And a lot of it was to do with uh, the wingers tucking in, uh, isolating defenders, and then letting the fullbacks rampage forward. And, yeah, the sesson on Foden combo became the most prolific partnership that England had, and it sort of shifted over from the left-hand side, which I think um, which was a good point that uh, Steve noticed throughout the thing, and that's probably why they drew nil-nil with Japan.
2: Yeah, they were just trying to recalibrate the attack, I think, in... And hudson Adoy became the foil um, as Foden had been when Sancho was playing. And then and then Foden really took over. And his combination with Cesonion really was really dynamic and kind of also then brought Brewster into the game, who'd been a little bit quieter while Sancho was still at the tournament. Um, and then that trio was kind of like the f- the fulcrum of, of England's attack. And hudson Adoy still had a really good tournament. Um, it was really important, but he kind of played more of a foil role a lot of the time, just... Stretching the attack and 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 providing more space for the other players.
1: Yeah, Hudson Odoi was like sort of played number ten when uh, Sancho was in the team. Like the it's really strange because England used their attacker midfielder as uh, like the the support striker rather than an actual a playmaker, and they use their wingers that see a lot of the ball. Uh, so when Sancho left, Hudson Odoi. Uh, moved out to the left, and and Angel Gomez and Gibbs White and Emil Smith Rowe, they were sort of used on the right or in the centre, and yeah, they they couldn't find the right balance until Gibbs White really stepped up and and looked a really good support runner for Ree brewster uh Hudson adoy started to flourish again from the left hand side, but yeah, the main sort of focus was was definitely down that right flank, and and when you've got a player like Phil Foden that's operating in that half space. Cutting inside—that's uh, definitely where you want to go.
0: Yeah, he definitely looked like uh, Manchester City's level has—they've been incredible this season. He was demonstrating their why their academy is so highly touted these days.
1: Yeah, definitely, and he's—he's he's sort of the—they've already—they've built a succession line of really intelligent left-footed players. They've moved David Silva into centre midfield this season. They've bought in Bernardo Silva, who who plays from the right from uh, with Monaco. Now they've got Phil Foden, so when David Silva gets too old, Bernardo Silva, who Pep Guardiola has been trying to use in that centre midfield role when he can, will move centrally. And then someone like Phil Foden can maybe step into that right wing role uh, when Sterling and Sané aren't burning people up. So they've got a little succession plan going and, and I think Pep Guardiola sees Phil Foden as part of it, which is really nice to see.
0: Yeah, and for a team and a manager that have definitely had their injury hit problems in the past, that's something promising for the citizens. Um, Something I wanted to look or to mention was I was looking into kind of the team dynamics and the breakdowns of the starting 11s of England and Spain by which club they play for. You know, uh, you saw at the last World Cup, Germany, a lot of guys Bayern and in Spain in 2010, a lot of those guys were from Barcelona and Of course, it's going to be like that for Spain, for Germany. But for England, it's always a mix of uh, all the clubs, really, in the Premier League and trying to get the right balance. And so I guess for Spain, they had four players from Real Madrid, four from FC Barcelona, two from Valencia, and one from Malaga in the starting eleven. England had four from Chelsea, three from Manchester City, and then one from each of Wolves, Spurs, Fulham, and Liverpool. So England kind of were able to strike that balance and get it right.
2: Yeah, I think it's a reflection of really the two best academies in the Premier League are uh, Chelsea and Manchester City and probably by a fair distance. Uh, especially Chelsea in the in the, uh, UEFA Youth League have been quite dominant, uh, won the tournament two years in a row before uh, Salzburg won last year. Um, and yeah, Manchester City is really starting to bear the fruits of the uh, massive redevelopment of their academy setup that they did a few years ago. Um, so, yeah, Manchester United, for example, the only player they got was Angel Gomez into the team and he kind of struggled at the tournament a fair bit um, and really couldn't make it off the bench that often. Um, but apart from that, it's yeah, it's really spread out, but Chelsea and Manchester City are really leading the way.
1: Yeah, what I'd say about the the balance there is there's definitely, a it's trickled in. They've got Wolves, Spurs, Fulham, Liverpool with one each, as you said, but Chelsea and Manchester City, I think you're going to start seeing them become almost the the Real Madrid and Barcelona of the english of the English sides um in the recent England squad call ups there's obviously high profile introductions of Tammy Abraham and loftus cheek and although they aren't actually at Chelsea at the moment, they're both on loan and they've both done a lot of good work with chelsea in the in the youth leagues beforehand um so yeah Chelsea, although they get slammed for not knowing what to do with the young players, there's no doubt that they're producing a massive bulk of them. So, whether in the future these these players are still playing for Chelsea when they make their senior debuts is, is remains to be seen. but in terms of if you look at the sort of final lineups for under 17, under 20, under 19 level, I think you'll always see that majority split of Chelsea, Manchester City uh, with a few other players trickled in between, and that's just a sign of how much emphasis they've put on their academies. Man um, City have spent a lot of money to try and make theirs one of the best in the in the country and in the world. And Chelsea similarly have always invested and, and bought players in, uh, which they've been criticised for. But if you just look at that England starting eleven, the players that are in it and, and the players that are performing well, you can't really blame them for it. And as I said, with Abraham and cheek now getting a senior England call up, then they're obviously doing something right if they're not finishing the job, if that's the way to say
0: Yeah, or if they're not even starting the job necessarily, because I was going to go off that point. You said you think Chelsea and City will go on to be kind of the big two, at least for producing the talent. I agree, because like you said, they invested in the Youth Academy and they invested at the right time. So even if they're kind of starting the job or buying a partially produced product and then even selling them on later for profit, I mean, they still played a part in in that and technically the players still represent them
1: that comparison makes it seem very sort of very cutthroat business like but it is true
0: um that's what they're trying to do mean not... hey, look at de bruyne from yeah. chelsea to city eventually
1: yeah exactly uh, so yeah and so it will still be man- it'll be be one of their names on the team sheet when he plays for belgium won't it he's had a role and i think a lot of
2: um players will start thinking about uh leaving the setup earlier than say players like Chalaba uh, have done so far so I think uh, you, you maybe might start seeing a trend soon of, of plays, especially um, filtering into mainland Europe instead of staying in the Premier League.
0: I think especially if, if Jaden Sancho does well at Borussia Dortmund, I think that would kind of give English players... Because, you know, a lot of English players don't leave England for development. I, of course, Dyer has gone to Portugal and, you know, there's, there's examples. But then there's Johar going to Torino and it being a disaster. But I don't know. There's just a reluctance, I think, for young English talent to leave England.
1: This summer, I think, has marked the sort of change from that, though. Jaden Sancho, because of his high high-profile move and how good he was this summer, is will become sort of the poster boy of that. Sort of move to Europe, you can do wonders sort of thing. But there's people... A lot of Arsenal's academy sort of just fled <laughs> uh, the Arsenal <laughs> set up to try and get some game time and development, uh, which is sad to see as well. Chris Willock... Um, went to Benfica despite being offered a new contract and uh, reportedly offered a deal at Manchester City as well. So he's gone to Portugal where a lot of young players come through and and eventually get a move to Europe. So that's really interesting. Uh, You've got Reese Oxford that's gone on loan to Gladbach. It's not been brilliant so far that you can't really say he's gone there and, and made a name for himself. But the intention to go abroad rather than Go somewhere else. Was there and and this summer there there are a lot of other other examples. Kalen Hines, another Arsenal youngster, uh, went permanently to Wolfsburg. Uh, so you're starting to see it more, and I think it can only be a good thing. And and Jaden Sancho definitely will be sort of the the sort of the 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 case study that everyone looks at now. At 17 years old, uh, on the back of a really good year for your international team, can he now translate that into? performances at the highest level for a, to- a top-tier team. Um, and if he can prove that even at 17 years old, you can play first-team minutes for a Champions League club, then what's going to stop other players being scared of doing that when it gives them the best chance to, to break into the sort of conversation of-, of great young players as early as possible?
2: And I think it's a really good chance to get out of the bubble and um, especially the culture around blooding youth in, in England's al- almost – it's kind of strange that uh, people are always looking for the first fault straight away to jump in and kind of piling on top of of young players to to not to not intentionally but just as a talking point. Um, just because the way the English media talks about the game is often just quite toxic. Um, so I think yeah, getting out of the bubble, getting into Europe where teams are more willing to to give academy prospects a chance in the first team. Uh, there's not as much pressure as there is in the Premier League with all the money that uh, is involved with, with avoiding prom, uh, avoiding relegation for some of those lower teams and winning the title for some of the, the uh, better teams. So, yeah, if Sancho does well, I think you could see a lot of those Chelsea, Man City, uh, Arsenal, United players that see their road to the first team blocked, uh, try and run down their contracts and force a move like Chalibre did this year with, to go to Watford from Chelsea.
0: Yeah, Watford have been able to profit off that. I would also say Man City kind of profit off that again because of Girona this year. They've been brilliant, obviously, just beat Real Madrid last week and it's it's been a really successful experiment so far, I think.
1: Well, Pablo Maffeo is getting all the plaudits, isn't he? Because he, he uh, followed Messi everywhere he went when uh, Girona played Barcelona and... And now he's getting rave reviews for his job that he did against Real Madrid. So it looks like they've uh, got a right back in the making um, by using the loan system. And yeah, it's just great to see young players doing well on the on the biggest stage. That's the, that's what we want to see, especially from our point of view at Scouted Football is we want to see these players translate a brilliant World Cup performance at under-17 under level into first-team minutes. And whether they're staying in England or going abroad to do it, that's ultimately what everyone wants to see from them. So choose the best path, really. Do it as quick as possible.
0: Yeah, and then for even the clubs loaning these players, they're not going to have them forever, but they can have them for at least a, a short period of time. And, you know, they can, they get a chance to do something special instead of the club bringing in a known commodity like a 32-year-old centre-half, you know, the traditional... Uh, Champion, proven championship player i guess in, in my opinion but uh yeah you know it's it's good to see some some clubs taking a chance even if it is a, a club like you um but yeah anyway i guess kind of kind of getting back to the world cup we kind of wanted to touch yeah, we, on we veered
1: off massively a bit then didn't we <laughs>
0: yeah yeah that was that's kind of my bad uh we kind of wanted to get back to the some group stage or early knockout stage themes of this tournament and because in i don't know at least i feel like at youth tournaments it kind of can be the luck of the lottery in in some stages of it and some teams just weren't lucky enough to go through some teams obviously weren't good enough
2: well you had to be pretty unlucky to not go through in a a tournament where 16 of 24 group stage competitors uh make the knockout rounds and then you've got teams like new caledonia uh, holding up the the fort for you um was some-
0: but is that more of being bad than bad luck? <laughs>
2: yeah, that's just being really bad. Um, So, yeah, I I think the group stages, they weren't quite a non-event. Oh, they were towards the end a little bit of a non-event when everyone knew that they'd qualified. Um, But the knockout rounds probably showed a bit more. The group stages was more about seeking out a few players, especially uh, one of the teams, Guinea. They had a, a stack of 14-year-olds in their team. Um and they're really inconsistent, but you could just see see some science from some of their players who so were trying to take in what they were doing before they eventually got knocked out. Um, but there were some woeful teams as well where you watch, like when France played New Caledonia, players like Adley and uh, Guiri played so, so well, but then you're thinking, well, they're playing against guys that who even knows what their experience playing in New Caledonia is like, what they're how often they train, what their coaching is like in comparison to these guys like Italy that are training every day, probably um, two games a week often. So uh, once it got to the knockout stages, so that's that's kind of when you had the serious teams and some really, really impressive games.
1: Yeah, the group stage was more of the platform for sort of that one individual in those uh, Minnow nations to, to stand out. Uh, it's where you saw sort of the the... The best individual displays, as I said, and and I think um, Unis Delphi is one that we we included in our team of the tournament, and and Iran demolished Germany four 0 in the in the group stages. So, despite the whole sort of three game system and and a lot of people going through, meaning there are a lot of dead rubber games or, or games that were really comfortable, you did get the odd classic uh, appearing, and and that Iran game was was incredible in itself. Germany. Germany they yeah, only ended up getting it together a bit. They were so inconsistent, and they have been in all the youth tournaments this summer. I'd say, but that game, uh, Delphi especially, just he took his chance uh, on one of the biggest platforms that Iran would have got in that
0: tournament, and and he absolutely destroyed them. Yeah, that was that was one of the most shocking games of the tournament for me.
2: Yeah. So, De- and Delphi, yeah, he scored two goals in that game, and he he and the, the other Iranian players, um, Ali Sayyad was another one press a life out of Germany's back line. And it kind of felt like Germany were themselves being Germany'd by um, the Iran attack that, yeah, just suffocated them trying to play out of defense. And And on the break, they could have scored more than four. They could have had they could have had eight in that game. They were impressive. But going on with, with what Jake said, just the bad teams, they all still seem to have one player that stood out. Um, one for me was uh, Mohamed Dawood, who as a striker, he kind of, not, I'm not one for comparisons often, but he kind of had a little bit of uh, Timo Werner about him. He was quick, strong, that really complete forward. And he pretty much put Iraq uh, on his back in the group stage, but uh, unfortunately came on as a sub in the third game as Iraq tried to give him a rest and got himself a yellow car that earned him a suspension for the first knockout game, which they got absolutely pumped in by Mali. Um, but, but he yeah, he was really impressive. And yeah, what Jake said, it really, really rang true. Uh, there was another few from uh, even New Zealand with uh, Max Matter who was quite impressive. Um, but yeah, the group stages are always... A, it really acted as a platform for us to pinpoint, even in the good teams that were going through, who are the ones that really, really we wanted to focus on, even with England like Foden and then France with Adley. Um, so yeah, the group stages, while there were a lot of dead rubbers, were still entertaining
0: yeah and we kind of got to see if some teams really did mean business i think Mali, we really saw that in the group stage they were back-to-back africa u17 champs so we knew they were good but they they really demonstrated it in the group stage
1: yeah they were they were sort of um as you just said they were african champions uh a lot so it it seems weird saying they they were surprised, but for me personally, as I said before, we're we're not going to pretend to know that we know the ins and outs of all twenty four teams at the under seventeen World Cup, and and Marley for me um, were one of the standouts and one that struck me massively. Uh, they definitely had their flaws. Um, I was looking at sort of the shots. Yeah, the, defensively they weren't solid, but um, I know you, you all agree with this point when I mention it, and you'll 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 know the numbers back it up, but. They had one hundred and eighty four shots in seven games at the tournament, yeah <laughs> and the next best is England on uh, one hundred and twenty six. <laughs> so they were they absolutely let fly shoot on site policy and and it's not a good thing. hundred and eighty four shots to be that far ahead of the eventual winners of the tournament isn't a good sign, but it just shows that they were fun to watch they They had no cares and they probably weren't restricted tactically as other teams were or maybe refined tactically because you shouldn't be again as i said england had 126 shots but they scored the most goals so the quality of chances they were creating weren't necessarily good but whenever you tuned in to watch mali play they were letting fly and, and they were brilliant to watch and they definitely had some very very good individuals yeah you were not going to be bored <laughs> i
2: think it was the, i think it's similar with with all african teams because guinea i think were leading the shots category after the group stage and they got knocked out in the group stage um, they had a very inexperienced team, though. So I don't know what's going on in Africa, but they just love pinging them from long range. Um, but yeah, Mali Mali had some really good individual players. Their their front three of Drame, uh, Jamusa Traore, and and Lassana Ndiaye were were all very special. Further back, they weren't quite so uh, so good, but we're all about the attacks.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's about fun, and this tournament had a lot of goals and in my opinion that's fun. Yeah,
1: it's good to see. You don't want to you don't want to this early on it's more about the sort of freeing up the players to to do what they can do and yeah, you want them to be able to defend and 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 they'll learn that, but a sort of defensive side of the game is something you learn as you progress, I feel. Um defenders just
2: peak later on as well. They generally get taller, bigger bodied and and then kind of learn more about the craft of defending and, and learning how to deal with uh, and, and learning a system as well a system of defense it's a lot more um, yeah. mental application in defending than it is with attacking
1: well definitely it's all about off the ball isn't it um and that's something that the more you play you understand how a ball rolls and and how players behave whereas when you're attacking it's, it's obviously about someone carrying the ball and then you running past them because you know that and then it's, it comes down to decision making but you can be a phenomenal, phenomenal player at under 17 level just by being a superb dribbler so all of these players that we love and the ones that dribble with it they catch the attention but now it's translating that into a sort of decision making but defenders can't even display that on the ball action because they're purely based on their reading of the game their marking their tackling So, it almost becomes harder to identify the really good defensive prospects um, at this level. That's why I
2: think it was so awesome. Also, the ones. Latibodier stood out so much for England because he was really just displaying all those traits, his positioning, his um, just decision making as a defender was just always seemed to be spot on.
1: You get a lot of good attacking players and it becomes hard to choose. But when someone like Latibodier plays like that, you are immediately drawn to that as, yeah, he's a good defender and, and they stand out. Much more uh, significantly than than when you compare the attackers. Yeah, yeah.
0: I was just going to say, someone that can organize the defense as a, a captain in the the heart of the defense, or as a fullback. You know, like what you guys were saying about it, attacking and not really knowing your place. Maybe you get caught forward too many times, and then you're just out of position to defend. You know, that could be not necessarily attributed to you, but just the whole the tactic or the mentality of the team could lead to that.
1: Yeah, I think I think that was commonplace as well. Uh, Sessegnon was brilliant going forward but uh, against Brazil especially he struggled in that one and one defensive situations and getting caught out and and uh, Fode Canate, who we chose for the team in the tournament again was similar we chose him because as a right back especially in the modern game he did everything that you would ever want and, and was brilliant he formed incredible relationships with those Mali attackers that we mentioned um, overlapping underlapping he made the right decisions attacking wise but it seems uh, bizarre to choose the right-back purely on that, but yeah, when, when Marley were defending, they, they lacked any real cohesion and uh, it was complete opposite to their attacking play. So he wasn't brilliant in that way, but he was one of the best right-backs in terms of the support he gave to his teammates. And then his his um, his on-the-ball actions in the final third as well were brilliant. He, he got a couple of goals and an assist. So yeah, I definitely feel like defenders, you need to be sort of, are on the side of caution before judging them too early because it's hard to learn so much so quickly. But you can still see some people that have the base uh, stats or base traits to to make it in the game.
2: It's quite funny because all three of the right backs that we had with tossing up between to put into the team of the tournament, Roland, uh, Sessignon and, and uh, Canate, were pretty much all really, really strong attackers, but then we were just like questioning how did they defend? They all played in pretty porous defenses, uh, except for Sessegnon, but he had his own struggles. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting. And it kind of now ties into not just youth football, but just the the role of the fullback in modern football anyway. How how important are they defensively versus offensively? Because um, the fullbacks that can't attack now are almost uh irrelevant and and a uh, kind of liabilities in 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 the better teams around the world
0: yeah I mean unless it's pep doing something like putting Fabian Delph at left back who's joining in the midfield when other people go forward it's an interesting role for you know someone who's not a bomber going forward on the wing or not someone who can really cross the ball in or even finish well, so you're right, a limited fullback kind of limits your options not as. But yeah, uh, Stephen and Jake did a team of the tournament, of course, so you can check that out on the blog section of scoutedftbl.com and um, some, other, some other blogs up there about the U-17 World Cup. Uh, we got to move on and talk a little bit about players that we can watch down the road this season, maybe for the rest of the season that might actually be possible to watch, and then we'll give you a couple other guys that you're going to want to keep an eye on down the road. So I'll let you pick first, Steve. Who do you got?
2: uh well I'm really really excited about phil foden um I think there's a pretty strong chance that he'll be able to get some minutes in the uh, league cup should city continue to progress through that tournament he would have got minutes if he wasn't playing in the final as uh city played a midweek league cup game the week leading up to the final um and yeah him on the He'll probably play in a more central role when he goes back to City. I think his wide role is um, more a sake of how many attacking options City, uh, not City, sorry, England had uh, that, that forced him out wide, but he's incredible. Um, he even could become a wide option under Pep as well, stretching um, stretching the play wide, netting with he's like Daniel to, to open. And he, uh, technically, just immaculate, um, perfect left foot. And is really, really aware of where he is on the field, just positionally, really aware. Um, and even defensively, he gets himself around. Probably isn't you know the strongest attacker. He's still pretty short. I think he's five foot seven or five foot eight. Uh, but gets around press. He's deceptively quick. So he's gonna. He's got a big future. He's a big time player.
0: Yeah, Steve. We all know about Foden. He's been favoriting tweets from the scout of football account. It's not really a big deal. Uh, Jake, who have you, who are you uh, most impressed by and most looking forward to watch for the rest of the year?
1: Yeah, I definitely agree that Phil Foden will be it will be really interesting to see if he if he plays and, and when he does play it'll be surely be a delight to watch. But I'd probably say that one player I'm really interested in, I I, I talk a lot about Jaden Sancho and we mentioned him before, so I'll probably skip him out at this moment. Uh him nutmegging someone on his Bundesliga debut for Dortmund was was enough to be said about that. But I'd probably move on to Jan Fieta Arp, who plays for Hamburg in the Bundesliga as well. Uh, He's a striker that's that's really interesting in in the fact that, despite being 17 years old, he's probably one of the most well-rounded number nines at that level. Um, He recently became the first player born in 2000 uh, to score in the Bundesliga, getting his first goal for Hamburg. And his record at uh, under-17 level is is pretty strong as well and I expect him to continue it and if he's being brought off the bench to to grab some goals for for his side then I'm pretty sure uh, we'll see a bit more of him in the Bundesliga this season and he it's really funny because obviously Harry Kane's only 24 but Arps actually said that Harry Kane is one of his idols so this shows how young these players are really but uh, he's drawn similarities with him because of the amount of shots he takes or or his sort of his hunger to go and score goals and and the comparisons are there he he can dribble with the ball and he's got deceptive pace about him but he he's best as as a finisher and he, he's sort of got the full repertoire of finishes as well he can score with both feet he can side foot it past the goalkeeper um with perfect placement he can he can dink it over unrushing goalkeepers and he can also just blast it into the net and i think when someone possesses so many weapons uh, inside the penalty box that will only serve them well whichever level they play at. He's the sort of striker that if he gets a chance, whether he's created it himself through his determination, his speed and his and his great uh, link-up play, um, or he's simply just poaching in and around the box, he's one of those players that will definitely score goals. And I think the fact he scored one already for Hamburg despite playing very few minutes and and broken a record in, or not broken a record, but made history in the process I think there's really good signs that he'll start becoming a a feature of that Hamburg side despite his age. And, and with Germany sort of lacking a, a centre forward in recent years, you've got Timo Werner coming through now who looks very good and he's a quick sort of pitbull-like striker in, in the fact that no one will catch him and he's very explosive. Arps, again, probably more complete and a mix of Werner and Sandra Wagner, who they use up front at the moment. So... There's high hopes for him and I think Hamburg will definitely give him the platform to sort of reach those heights that are predicted. So be interesting to see if he can carry on his goal-scoring form at a senior level.
2: Yeah, so you start with Arp and then you can uh, continue along the, the big nations in Europe and they, at under-17 level at this World Cup, they all had um uh, the, the amazing number nine coming through at Spain. You had Abel Ruiz who... Uh, was a really good he wasn't a foil, but um as he kinda could drop into the channels as a creator and allowed uh Ferran Torres on the right and Sergio Gomez from Barcelona on the left to to have impact on the scoreboard while he was still a massive threat himself, although he missed a bucket load of chances. Um then in France you had Amin Goury, uh who started at the under seventeen Euros and then uh translated that into uh, his performance at the tournament where he he torched New Caledonia in the first game and, and kept that form up uh, a little bit selfish at times. And he's more of a, a player that can dribble in and around the box and, and also play off the last man's shoulder. Uh, and then also obviously with England and, and Brewster, who uh, really I think has a, sh- has a shot at uh, getting a few minutes and especially in the league cup Um as, as Liverpool, they continue in the Champions League. Uh, and with the League Cup and everyone wanting to play their second team in the League Cup, might be a good chance for him to play there. But then even, he didn't play at the Under-17 World Cup, but even with Italy and, and Moise Keane uh, playing at Hellas Verona this year, those, those big European nations all at this age level all have a big number nine to get excited about. So that's really fun to see.
0: Yeah, it's good to see some of these young guys having such significant statistical success leading the lines and across those European nations, like you said, uh, England, France, Germany, Spain, and then Italy, Moise Keane, not there, not at the World Cup. And there have been some other guys, but they're not at a European nation. They're actually the Americans.
1: Amen.
0: Andrew Carlton, Josh Sargent, Tim Weah, they're not all strikers, but they're all attackers and they all had fantastic summers.
1: Yeah, I really like Josh Sargent, actually. And if we're talking about sort of the, the center forward number nines, uh, what that number typically represents, he's probably up there with those guys as well. Um, he's like one of the, he only he and Freddie Adu have scored at an under 17 and under 20 World Cup in the same year.
0: Yeah, but only one of those two players is a vacuum salesman. <laughs>
1: that, again, that's why <laughs> we have to tread so carefully with these players because he was brilliant in the Under-20 World Cup as well. Um, as I said, he led the line for them when he was just 17 and, and he's captain of the Under-17 team. So he's a really exciting prospect. And and what I didn't notice at the Under-20 World Cup was quite how sort of big he is for his age because... There he looked sort of like the really nuisance sort of striker was running the channels and and harrying defenders. Whereas then when you put him in the under-17 World Cup scenario, he looked like this big hulking centre-forward that was holding people off and then switching it around the corner or just hammering it in with his right foot. So again, it's easy to forget what players' main traits or their style of play are depending where they're playing. When he was with older guys, he was using his pace a bit more. When he dropped down back to his age level, he was, as I said, like a a pure target and a, and a link man. And yeah, Josh Sargent is the one from that USA team that I personally, uh have got really high hopes for.
0: Yeah. And he will be going, well, he's, he's already agreed to a move, but he will be joining Vetter Bremen when he turns 18 on February 20th next year. So they've been having a pretty poor start to the Bundesliga campaign. If the bad things continue, maybe Josh Sargent will get a chance to play.
2: Yeah, but I've been really big on, on Tim Ware from, from that team. Um, drifting in from the left, he just really good decision maker. You saw he's got a really excellent goal in that hat-trick that he had against Paraguay when he curled that one in from the, the corner of the box. And he's when he's played for PSG in the UEFA Youth League, he's also looked really impressive, um, efficient, quick, and really solid at tracking back and covering for his fullback as well. Um, so we'll go through now a couple of also just different names just to, to run through from the World Cup that we were impressive, but uh, we thought were impressive, but probably uh, won't be making that jump into senior football just yet. And I also wanted to start with a couple of uh, Tim, Tim Weyer's PSG uh, teammates in the youth league. Firstly, Yassine Adli, who is one of the silkiest central midfielders uh, you'll see at this level, has a bit of Adrian Rabiot about him. Uh, the way he glides around. Um, and then also his midfield partner, Claudio Gomez, who's a, a little bit of a register uh, that kind of pulls the strings from deep, picks up from the center backs and, and launches attacks. Uh, but is there anyone that, that you're looking out for to, to watch at Youth League? Uh, it might be hard to watch. You might just want to track their progress, Jack.
0: Oh, I don't know. Those PSG guys, like you said, they are very exciting, but there's a lot of... Stoppage in the way of them getting to first team football. So, like you said, the youth league is good to track. Uh, I don't know, ne- not necessarily from from some of these guys, but I'm I'm really curious just to watch the the England team, I guess, in general and how they develop because some of them are, are in the lower league, so they will get a chance to play in uh, in England this year.
1: Yeah, I, I want to. Um, Brazil seems like a really good platform t- for the young players to to break through into first teams. Uh, Paulinho, who's probably Marcus Antonio and Paulinho were my favourite Brazilian players. Um, Paulinho probably just edges it, just because I loved the way he just ghosted around. And then as soon as it gets near that penalty area, he came to life and he was just... A...
2: Well, he's already playing first-team yeah, football as that's well. that's what I was going
1: to say. Is like, um, in terms of difficult-to-watch time zones and stuff, especially from my point of view, he's going to be hard to track game-by-game game for Vasco da Gama. But he's one of those players that... I really want to keep an eye on, and he's very. He's played at fullback, he's played centre forward, and he and he played right wing for Brazil. And again, with wingers now, everyone sort of eighty percent of your wingers are probably the inverted style in the sense that they play on the opposite side so that they can cut in and and wreak havoc that way. What I loved about Paulinho was the fact that he played on the right but was so good still in the half space despite it being his strong side, like uh, Thomas Lamar they 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 are very different players but just the way lamar plays on the left and and is left-footed is almost rare now and paulinho in that sense was just drifting inside all of brazil's slick interchanges around the box usually came from paulinho and he 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 in fact scored or assisted in every game and even in brazil's game against england it was his shot that was eventually turned in so for someone to have that much of a central role in a, in a team's attacking play uh, I really think his football intelligence was uh, was one of the best and he's probably the one that I want to track but I can't track if this is what this section really is about.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then I think also a few of the Asian and African-based players, Delphi from Iran, Dawood from Iraq, uh, the Malian players, NDIA, Jumusa Traore, Kanate and, and Haji Drame. and
1: Salam Jidou. Uh, Don't, Don't forget that. Yeah,
2: Salam Jidoo as well. He's silky as well. Um, and then also the one that really stood out for me from Guinea and their team of half under fourteen uh, sorry, half fourteen year old <laughs> players uh was, was Fanji Touré, the the attacker who who notched a few goals in the group stage and and looked a fair player. He was also the top scorer at the um, under seventeen AFCON. I think he scored seven goals in that tournament. Um, so he's definitely not one that I'll be watching probably uh but every now and then I'll just check in to see how he's doing if I, if if any stats are made available
0: yeah yeah I guess I guess I did kind of one and that would be uh Alan Rodriguez that was of Paraguay and right now he's he's at Club Cerro Porteño so in Paraguay and that's a club that I just have no way of tracking their <laughs> U20s you know but he he had a, a good uh a couple of good set pieces in the group stage.
2: Yeah, him roll on and and uh, Leo Sanchez wants to to watch from from Paraguay. But yeah, it's impossible to to keep track of everyone. So uh, that's why you
1: follow us now. as well to try and as much as <laughs> we, we do our best. Exactly. We we try and get the ones that you may have forgotten about. But uh
0: yeah, there's just so many. Yeah, and there's a lot of. the Sorry, there's a lot of other brilliant people behind the the Twitter besides just Stephen and Jake well. I don't know well, if they're so brilliant, but sure
1: there are advice. other people behind yeah, it.
2: Yeah, only me and Jack are
1: brilliant. Well, the, the Twitter <laughs> is brilliant. <laughs> I'm <laughs> joking.
2: Uh, Jake, not you, Jack. You're not brilliant. Only Jake's brilliant. You're brilliant at the podcast. No, no, I don't I know that.
1: <laughs> Everyone is brilliant, to be honest. And yes. so was everyone at the Under-17 World Cup. And we could probably do this podcast, I think, for... We could have done a whole hour just discussing the team of the tournament. We could have done a whole hour on group stage talents, a whole hour on uh, knockout stages. It, it really was a, a really good um, introduction into some players that you did hear of, you had heard of before and, and that you hadn't. Um, and it just gets me so excited because there's players that i have watched, as we said, that you want to now track and you want to see how they do. And there's that anticipation of, oh, I watched them in india in 2017 when they were really good at the under 17 world cup so for them to come to life and get senior minutes that's sort of the the really exciting part of it from my point of view anyway
0: yeah yeah it's definitely there with some players they will make a big and you'll say oh yeah i remember i was watching him
2: yeah wilker farinez when he dominated and i said that he would be better than donnarumma <laughs>
0: Yeah, and on that note, it's probably time to wrap up. I think that's all we have time for. As Jake was saying, it was a great opportunity for us to be able to spread some of our love of this U17 World Cup. And really, honestly, all youth football, of course. So that's why we do what we do at Scouted Football. We're hard at work editing and writing those Handbook 3 profiles. Hope you're eagerly awaiting those next year. Anyway, I want to say thank you from me, Jack Grimsey, for listening to Scouted Says. Stephen, pleasure having you. A pleasure as
2: always. And I think uh, we'll start getting more consistent on, on the pods, as, if not weekly,
1: at least every two
2: weeks or so.
0: Yeah, you can follow Stephen at Stephen and Jake Entwistle. Thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, very good to be on here. One of my favorite topics. So, I'm glad I could make an appearance.
0: Yeah, we had to bring in the expert. And for Jake, you can follow him at Jake and Whistle on Twitter. So we're on iTunes and SoundCloud. You probably already listened to us there. So thank you for doing so. And until next time, this has been Scout It Says. I'm Julian Brandt and you're listening to Scouted Chains.